back, Habibi. Welcome to Wrecked, the podcast where we explore what happened when California legalized adult use marijuana in 2018. I am Christopher Trout, the creative and editorial director of The Grass Agency. I am joined today by my coworker and complete nuisance, Rena Caria. <laughs> it me. <laughs> okay, that's that's a way to do it. That's right. And Brandy Moody. Hi. How's it going, Brandy? I'm good. I'm good. What do you do for a living, Brandy? What do I do? You sound like my cousin. What does your day look like? Right. Um, <laughs> what even are you? Yes, I do consulting in the mostly insights and strategy and a little bit of research in food, wine, and cannabis worlds. Aside from being a nuisance, what do you do, Rena? I am the design and branding director for the Grass Agency, and I'm also trying to get up some weed licenses specifically distribution so there's been a lot of talk in the cannabis industry or the weed industry about who's making money post legalization and i think one of the one of the things that i've heard over and over again is that the only people making money in this industry are the lawyers i'm giving them a lot of money <laughs> so i wanted to talk to a couple of lawyers i wanted to see how much money they're making, which, spoiler alert, they wouldn't tell me. But I also wanted to find out what that means for the industry, that there is, if not some truth to that statement, at least that it's out there, right? That this is what what the prevailing sort of um, cliche is, that the only people making money in this industry are the lawyers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah. All the ancillary services, the lawyers, the accountants, the um, uh, the consultants. So I reached out to a couple of lawyers who honestly couldn't be more different. The, the first of them is James Anthony. He is a longtime cannabis activist and lawyer. I run a small law firm in Oakland with a statewide uh, cannabis business and compliance practice focusing on sort of the deal making elements and the regulatory compliance elements at the um, local and state levels he's not only like a big talker but he's got lots of brags on his countertop and mothers like kombuchas right he has a kombucha tap in his dining room oh mm-hmm. okay and a watsu pool and a watsu pool uh if you don't know what that is I really couldn't tell you, but um, there are some YouTube videos. I can send you a link. Just hit me well, up. It's where adults get floated around a pool like babies. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I represent um, mostly cannabis businesses. The other person I reached out to is a lawyer who at least one of us has a, a close connection to. Whoop, whoop, Jamisha! <laughs> So I do their corporate compliance as well as their regulatory compliance. I don't do litigation or any kind of like breach of contracts for them or anything like that, but I do draft contracts for them as well. So those are kind of the three categories of things that I will help them with. So Sharmi is in compliance, uh, compliance law. So basically what she does is she 
ensures that her clients are aware of new regulations and she helps them navigate those new regulations. She also does some contract work, but for the most part, she is in compliance, whereas James Anthony is very much so an activist, right? So he's in there trying to change the laws. Charmy works in an office building in downtown San Jose. She has never smoked weed. I would disagree that we're the only ones making money. It's created a whole new industry for lawyers. It's created business for regulatory compliance. It's created business for, you know, trademark and, you know, um, like the IP side of it, the mergers and acquisitions side of it. It's definitely kind of rejuvenated all sorts of different industries um, within the legal community. But I don't think that that's necessarily where all the revenue is going from this industry. I think most of it's going to taxes and licensing fees. The thing that I thought that was interesting about both James and Charmy is that they have a history that predates Prop 64, right? So regardless of the fact that they may be the only ones in the industry making money, and both of them have different things to say about that, as they do about most things, uh, but they've both been working in the cannabis space since long before it was legalized under Prop 64. And as Charmy will tell you, there wasn't a lot to go on before 64. I can't remember off the top of my head when the attorney general guidelines came out, but those guidelines were kind of issued to allow this idea of um, cooperative cultivation and sharing of medicine because you had people who obviously were very ill who couldn't cultivate it on their own. And so this idea of you know collective cooperative cultivation and then sharing it amongst this you know kind of closed loop was established and then the attorney general issued guidelines saying hey if you want to do this this is the way you're going to do it right you're going to be a nonprofit you're going to do you know it's going to be closed loop everyone has to be a member all these other things and so then um, people were still not 100% I mean, you saw it more kind of in the golden triangle area like you know obviously like up in Humboldt etc you saw a little bit more uh, laxness of that of those or acceptance and opening of those um, kinds of cooperatives or collectives and then um, you didn't see it down here as much until really um, the coal memorandum was kind of like the opening of the door here where when the Obama administration came out and said the federal government isn't going to come and prosecute individuals who are in this industry if the state allows for them to be in this industry. And so that's when you saw kind of everyone pop up all over the place. There's also the um, Roe Barker Farr Amendment, which was another kind of piece of legislation. So Congress basically said federal funds could not be used to prosecute crimes in states, like basically prosecute individuals in states where cannabis was legalized for medical purposes. And that's why uh, the state was very big on making um, medical its own path and and, uh, adult use its own path because they wanted to give uh, the cannabis businesses an ability, like if the feds came in and shut down your adult side, your medical side could still function. So you have this smattering of different things that both James, Anthony, and Sharmi Shah are trying to use to kind of inform how they tell their clients to or not to do business. And, you know, things are running pretty smoothly. And, you know, you have dispensaries popping up in certain cities and really testing the boundaries of these sort of vague Frankenstein regulations. And you end up with certain cities completely outlawing it, other cities just kind of letting it happen. 
Some cities attempted to regulate, but really couldn't. And you have a few, like Oakland, San Jose, LA, and others who created San Francisco as well, obviously, because they were the first, who basically created some regulatory framework for marijuana businesses, right? And then Prop 64 hits. And all of the sudden, these companies, these businesses that have been operating kind of just on the fly, doing things as they pleased for the most part, were now subject to a stack of regulations that, I mean, honestly, I saw the, the, the regulation books at Charmy's office when I was interviewing her. They're huge. On my desk, you see, like, these, that's the, all the current regulations. Wow. Yeah. So that those are big. the, that's the current version. You'll see in my bookshelf, like, underneath those papers, uh-huh. there's another set. That's the older version. The older version looks smaller. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Prop 64 is set up so that not only does the state have a say in how marijuana is regulated, but so do the cities. And a lot of cities were like, that sounds hard. Right. And so the but but what Prop 64 did was was say that like you city, you you can you have up until this date and you can make up your own or just follow ours. Right. And so when cities made up their own, they're stricter. Most of the time they're they're stricter than what 64 says. Right. So that was kind of or you as a city have the ability to say no, we don't want it at all. Initially, when Prop 64 came out, the cities were all given kind of warning. Like, if you don't, basically, if you don't regulate, then our, the state regulations will, will be what your regulations are. So you saw a lot of lo- cities and counties just banning it because they were like, we don't want to deal with it right now, so we're just going to ban it, right? Sure, sure. So, yeah, they just didn't want it. They didn't know where it was going. They didn't know what it was. It was just a lot of work. And so um, so they just banned it. So you still have a lot of those bans in place, which is why, I mean, there's been you know iterations of the law. And here they have two levels of regulatory compliance. They have two levels of taxes. They have two levels of licensing fees. So it's like double, double your enjoyment, y'all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like two of uh, some things is great. Two of these things is not so. And as a consumer, when you look at your receipt and you start to see all those line, those tax, tax lines, tax lines, tax lines. I mean, sometimes in somewhere like San Jose, you have like three different lines of taxes Mm -hmm. and you're like, well, I just got a five dollar joint that now is costing me, you know, 15. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's. And then as a consumer, you, you think to yourself, well, where's that money going? Right. You know, is it going back into this? Is it going to this? I mean, I know in Los Angeles, the money is not going into enforcement or into things like that. The money is going into, quote unquote, solving the homelessness problem. Right. Which is a beast, you know? Well, and I guess it really is up to the consumer to decide or to, to look into and figure out where that money is going, mm-hmm. right? Well, the consumer for the most part, in the state of California, which both Charmy and James said, they're going to put their money in the black market because there aren't those taxes. And these taxes are a major reason why the black market is still thriving. Well, and the illicit market is huge. It's even mm-hmm. bigger than the regulated market, which is is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. One well, of the reasons why, though, the illicit market is booming not only because of of the extra taxation and all these things is because 
in some of these cities that didn't have regulations prior, they existed before. And there were so many of them. I think I was reading today, you sent me an article that said there are 200 illicit dispensaries in LA. And let me tell you, y'all, they are not cute. No. (laughs) (laughs) Rita and I went to this place in LA. I can't, I, I don't even know the name of it. It was in Culver City somewhere. And I'm not trying to get anybody busted or anything like that. Like, but we went in there. Don't th- worry, they're not busting anyone. So yes. Well, I mean, th- that is a point we will get to yeah, later, we'll get right? To that, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of enforcement, and that is a good or bad thing, depending on how you look at it, right? But there is this sort of like dispensary whack-a-mole going on where these city police departments are trying to shut down these dispensaries. And they can, but they're just going to pop right back up. I mean, the things that are possible in these dispensaries, it is wild. And I guess because we have been going to dispensaries in California where it's been, well, sorry, in the Bay Area where it's been regulated a little bit more strongly, you, you didn't really, you didn't really have these experiences here. No. This place we went to in Culver City, though, y'all, oh my fucking God. Well, it was... To work there, you needed a face tattoo. Basically, which, everybody there was which, like Post Malone. They okay. were cute. They were cute. I'd go on a date with anybody in there. But the but the black market dispensary, for all intent and purpose, like when you walk in, looks like legal, or is it labeled no. the same well, way? Or? It's it's so the check in system is the same. Like you go in, and it's actually it's a little bit different. It's you run down. You go in, it looks a little run down. But I've been to dispensaries yeah. in the Bay that are run down. There are varying levels of cleanliness and that sort of thing even in the regulated market but this place was it was pretty rough they've got all these ball jars full of weed with these like totally bootleg stickers on the front that say things like OG Kush or whatever all of the nugs are like the size of my pinky toe they had micheladas mm. they did have they micheladas. Had shatter micheladas it was so really they had those you know those michelada setups that you find in the gas station it's yeah. like um styrofoam cup. Styrofoam yeah. cup with the the tahine on the outside it was, they had that but it was infused it and was i'm like shattered tahine shattered tahine yeah i mean that shit's hot That's and innovative. Like, i'm into it but can we get it on the regulated market? I don't know that. Yeah. Well, the um <laughs> the gift for being a first time customer. Yeah, your gift with purchase was um which is illegal. Yes. Right. You can't give weed away for free, y'all. Not anymore. <laughs> Not in the regulated market. Um, were some homemade space cakes wrapped in Saran wrap with the li- with the like you know like a label that you could buy at Office Max on it, and also all the like oil or butter like seeping all the way through so the labels were 210 they were 210 milligrams a piece and the labels were soaked in like green oil (laughs) in california your edibles can only if they're if they're for adult use can only go up to 100 milligrams and each serving has to be 10 has to be clearly marked 10 milligram servings right this was 210 milligrams and she was like if you're gonna eat this stay home (laughs) you know like call a friend if things get weird (laughs) we have not eaten them but we did smoke their we did smoke their weed i had a great time we got on their weird weed so we ordered three pre-rolls right and we we said you know rena's rena's going in there the informed consumer that she is and she's like i'd like a you know a kind of um 
a nice sort of heady, lemony, maybe like citrus. THC sort of heavy. THC heavy. And she, this woman looks at her with her, you know, like one but, eyebrow raise that says always above it in, but, in script. And she says, we have strawberry, peach, or champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so what's happening in Los Angeles is that it's supposed to be $20,000 a day fine for um, the LA city gives to property owners for running illegal businesses. Mm -hmm. So of all these 200 illegal dispensaries, only one has been busted. That Um, is wild. And that's because LA, it falls on the LAPD to enforce this and they don't have the, at first they were running the program off of their overtime budget and then they ran out of money. And then a, a big problem is that a lot of these dispensaries are in South LA and LAPD obviously has a tumultuous history with South LA residents. And they have other priorities there. Exactly. So they're, they don't really have the willpower to do this. Um, nor do they have council backing, according to a lot of dispensary owners and uh, watchdog citizens that I know in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They don't have the council backing for this. So, they, so there's that. So then to the point of not having power in some of these places. So if you're running an illegal business, Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles can cut off your power and water. But in order to do that, they need a police escort. Mm. And the police, again, aren't going to do that because this is so low priority for them because they don't have a framework set up. And that was an, that's like another big element that... You know, Prop 64 giving cities their own power to develop their framework. What has not happened in a lot of these cities is the law enforcement framework hasn't really been fleshed out. You know, in San Jose, there is a subsect of the department that is 100% devoted to cannabis regulation and enforcement, where in Los Angeles, they haven't quite done that. And that's why the black market, illicit market, is just bananas down there. When I talked to Lori Ajax months and months and months and months and months and months ago, I asked her, I was like, so why don't we see enforcement happening, right? And her response was basically like, well, we want to onboard these people. We want to get them into the regulated market. Like, if we crack down on them, then we lose potential regulated market players, right? So what they're really focused on right now, on a state level at least, and on on mo- multiple municipal levels, is really getting people into compliance, right? Like getting them into a compliance system. Um, the trouble with that is, though, is that you have such a complicated web of regulation going on. So not only do you have two times the regulatory compliance two times the levels of taxes and two times the licensing fees, you also have three different regulatory bodies regulating cannabis right now, which is not honestly not that uncommon, but they're not communicating. The lorry was a uh, high, highly placed in the, in the alcohol beverage control um, uh, agency. And so that would be a model, but you got a, a couple of problems. She doesn't run the show. She only licenses, BCC and the Department of Consumer Affairs only licenses retail storefront, retail delivery, distribution, (coughs) and micro-businesses. She does not regulate the supply chain. She does not regulate cultivation. Um, 
Cal Cannabis and the California Department of Food and Agriculture, a completely separate agency run by other people, uh, regulates cultivation, all of it. The California Department of uh, Public Health regulates manufacturing. Looking at all of this, a couple of questions popped up for me. One of them being, what is the incentive to get into the regulated market if it's so fucking complicated, right? And was it worth it? Apparently, legalizing or regulating, if you like, cannabis did not end or cure 500 years of racism in America. And uh, I don't think I thought it was going to, but it did seem like a step in the right direction. So yeah, better than a poke in the eye with a chopstick. But this question keeps on coming up. Again, it's like, who fucked up? Why are we here? And James was the first person to say, and I honestly, it was like a light bulb went off. You know, the regulators are to blame to an extent, but like this was a voter initiative. <sighs> Sorry, y'all. Brandy and I are to blame. It's me. It's me and Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, you know, again. We didn't write it to be fair. We didn't write it, but we were we were promised legalization. Yeah. And and how are you going to say no to that after after years of, you know, being prohibition. in prohibition? What should have uh, you know, not that the people that put money into the anti-64 campaign were not doing the right messaging. It was very much like a family kind of initiative about you know, protecting children. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a... Um, Your weed's going to cost too much. Yeah, like a consumer a consumer advocate uh, kind of coalition, which probably should have been the message rather than, well, it's just going to be legal. Right. Well, what I, li- what I really got out of these interviews too is like, man, what a time to be alive for a lawyer, right? I mean, if you're... Um, an enterprising young lawyer looking to get into X industry, it's mm-hmm. cannabis. You well, can really, really forge your way. You can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of impact, good or bad. And I think it's a great time to be a lawyer in cannabis. Charmy's excited by it. Yeah. I thought that was the kind of cool thing. I mean, it's cool for her that like there's no laws before this. And she was saying that you go to law school and you're learning things and about precedent and and shit that's already happened. But this is the first time or in a long time, in a long time that you can set precedents and be a part of shaping this industry and then how it goes forward in the future. And and that's, it probably, it reminds me of like 15 years ago in tech. Mm -hmm. It, It has a lot of, I remember I have a friend that works in tech with, um, intellectual property, and it reminds me a lot of what she was doing like 15 years ago where there right. was no precedent. It's there like, was what no... is software? Right. And how do we... Yeah, exactly. I'm going to sell a pixel. Yeah. <laughs> and then we find Mitch, out that... No, the... you got to sell like 20 <laughs> at least. <laughs> the internet is endless. There are opportunities to shape this thing, whatever. But like, why do we even have to do that? Right? Like, why are we having to go back after the fact and fix all these fuck ups? Right? Like, what could have happened differently was one of my questions to both of them and both Charmy and James, just like everything else had different answers. But one of the things that they both came back to was like, keep it simple, stupid. Lori and Richard and the rest of them did a amazing job given the insane time constraints and the completely illogical system that was handed to them both by the legislator and the voters 
although, you know, the voters just said yes to whatever the authors of Prop 64 said, which was basically what the legislature had said, which was basically unworkable. So they managed to create, you know, lots and lots of regulations. And, and you know, they kind of did the logical thing, right? Is you've got all these illegal people. What are you going to do? Are you going to make some regulations and say, hey, why don't you follow these regulations and then we'll make them the regulations and then you'll be legal? That's not going to work. You just drop the regulations and say, hey, guess what? You're all illegal. Now try to catch up. And, you know, you've got whatever, six months. So, I mean, that was sort of a logical response on the part of the actual regulatory staff to a completely impossible and illogical situation. I feel that if they had given the licensed entities a period where they didn't have to collect taxes, I think that the black market would not have remained as thriving as it has. Because that's the biggest thing people will tell you with the black market is we don't have to pay taxes and it's a lot of taxes and those people don't have to pay annual operating fees and they don't have to pay any of these other kind of, you know, basic costs that all these licensed businesses have to pay. We have to, or people who are trying to, you know, set up these businesses have to declare, that's what Charmin was saying, to the BCC or whichever regulatory body that they're talking to, how much money they're going to make already. And it's like, we're not even up. <laughs> how the fuck do we know? It's a... It's a new industry. And um, those taxes, if you're a city tax or a state tax, 5 to 10% is your profit margin. It's mm -hmm. It might as well be zero but um, or negative, but you have to say up front how much you're going to make. And how the fuck does anyone know? James's suggestion, his kind of solution is just legalize everything. Legalize all drugs because enforcement of drug-related crimes has proven to not do shit. And I'm like... I'm for it. That seems like a hard sell. I feel like... <laughs> but the word... I feel like we're doing a good job, kind of, with the decriminalization. Right. You know, Denver decriminalized mushrooms. There's... It, I think that's starting to kind of... Berkeley really set a precedent for that. Oakland on. did. Oakland did, too. Well, so it's not... It's also not legalization if you can get arrested for it. Right, that's true. So, like, I know that the whole podcast is about what happened when California legalized adult use, but, like, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aw. Well, certainly. Oh, <laughs> shit. We're gonna, gotta, we gotta start all over, y'all. <laughs> Wrecked is a podcast of the Grass Agency. I'm Christopher Trout. My co-hosts are Rena Karia and Brandy Moody. We're produced and edited by Kyle Mock, and our theme music is by Reginder. Follow us at the Grass Agency on Instagram and Twitter. We'll see you next week.